There we go. Okay. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I love Women of the Word Morning because not only do we like feast on God's Word, but we get to feast on some awesome food. So for those of you who brought stuff, thank you so much. Um, I love breakfast, and I love it when it's made by other people. It's so good. So thank you. Um, would you mind if I just pray to get us started on this one again? Father God, we are so grateful to be your daughters and to have access to your truth. We live in a world that is so confusing. And to be able to hear your word, um, it's our anchor. It gives us bearings. Um, it's our compass. It's our hope. And so, God, I just I pray that you would renew in us the desire to read, to study, to know your word, to live your word. God, would you just bless our time, be our teacher, for your glory and fame. In your name we pray. Amen. So, I guess it was two summers ago, I had the opportunity to go to my first ever Catholic wedding. And um, it, was, it was very interesting because the passage of scripture that was read was actually from the Apocrypha, which I've never read. These, these, verses, these uh, books that come kind of in between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And it was this story, it was this beautiful story, actually, of um, a man and a woman who had just gotten married, and they were about to consummate their marriage. But the husband says, no, 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 we must pray, let's get down on our knees. And he prays this prayer, asking for the mercy of God. It's really intense and beautiful, and you're like, whoa, this guy, like, he's really dedicating their marriage. The priest comes up to deliver the message, and he says, have you guys ever read this whole book of Tobias? And they're like, no. He's like, well, what you need to understand is that this particular woman has been married two other times. And that every night on her wedding night, her husband is found dead. And so what this man is praying for is the mercy of God that he will remain alive while he's married to this woman. And, you know, we all bust out laughing because these these dear folks who were about to get married hadn't read this story to know what was actually happening. They didn't know the context of this story, right? We all say this all the time. You took that out of context, right? Like if you say to your kid, you're at the pumpkin patch, hon, you can get whatever you want. You know, like you can go pick out a pumpkin, go get whatever you want. And then later that day, you go to Toys R Us, they say, well, you told me I could get whatever I want, you know? You're like, no, 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 that's taken out of context, right? So it's really important for us that when we're approaching God's word, that likewise, we see it in context. So, oh, let's go up this way. So context... Um, is the principle that we must understand the context of a, of a text, of a passage of scripture, in order to see how the original audience understood the text. Right? So, how did them then, that particular audience at that particular time, understand what that author was saying? We have to understand the context of that time those people to understand the true message of what is being said, what it was written. Once we understand that, then we can better understand what it means for us now. 
But I think oftentimes we skip that step and just say, I want to know what it means for me today. But we have to do the hard work of figuring out what it meant to them then so that we can understand better what it means for us today. So often, one way that we can think about this is putting our text and thinking of it inside of not only what the book is saying in a literary way, but also what's happening historically. So there's a historical context and a literary context. So you can think of it this way. What's happening in the world at that time? And what are the words that are being used around this text? The literary words and historical worlds. If you can put it within those spheres, you're going to get a better understanding of what's being said to them at that time. Okay? I don't know about you, but sometimes I I approach a particular scripture, and I am just downright confused. What in the world is that trying to say? Um... And sometimes, kind of like what Colleen was saying, we add to it, we take away from it. We don't actually get what it's trying to say. So I want us to think about a, a passage that's used pretty frequently. Uh, Romans 8.28. Are you familiar with this one? Let's see, I'll pull it up here for you. This is often what's quoted. And we know that in all things, God works for the goods. Okay, I have, I have a confession to make. I love Delilah. Do you guys know Delilah? Delilah. Right? Okay, she like, plays the cheesy song. Anybody else? Anybody? We can talk later. I love, okay, like I have done long car travel at late at night, and um, Delilah keeps me awake because she plays all the old songs I grew up with. I was singing, um, whatever I do, I do it for you. That was last night, guys. It was good. It was good. Um, it's like carpool karaoke. Anyway, Delilah loves to use verses like this. But is this the whole verse? God works everything together for good. Is that the whole verse? You tell me. A lot of you open it up. Is that the whole verse? No. It's not the whole verse. We're missing a chunk of this verse. Oh, look at this. He works for the good of those who love him. Not everybody loves him. Who have been called according to his purpose. This, this promise is, is for God's people. Now, that's just part of the literary context. Let's continue to look at the next verse. What is his goodness? His goodness, it says here, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness, for, to the image of his son. That's his good plan for us. It's not that you get a pony and an ice cream cone at the end of the day. It's that you look like Jesus at the end of your days. That's his good plan for you. Now, if that's 
just the literary context. Remember there are circles? So that's just the words surrounding this particular verse. If you look at the historical context of Romans, okay, we, maybe you're familiar with what's going on in the Roman world. This book was particularly written to the Roman church. This church was under persecution. This church is under some interesting leadership. They needed to be reminded that God was at work in their situation, even though it was very, very challenging. Now, instead of just ripping this verse, or putting this verse, maybe, I don't know, on a kitchen calendar or reminding people on the radio that God's working, when you think about the people of that time who were under persecution, under very difficult circumstances, that God was working in them so that they would look like Jesus. This, this is what's being said to them at that time. Can you then actually take more meaning for yourself today from this verse? We're living in challenging times, right? And, and we need to be reminded that, man, even though things are really weird at times, God is working in his people to make us look more and more like Jesus. There's, that is a deep anchor. Okay? Does that make sense? Needing to understand what it's meaning to them then through the words surrounding the text and the history surrounding the text helps us better understand what it means for us today. Okay, we're going to dig in a little bit deeper to another passage that's often, oh man, this one's often quoted. Um, And why don't we go ahead and before we do that, what are some strategies that we could use to help find the context of a passage? Help us figure out the words surrounding the passage and the world surrounding the passage. What are some strategies we could use? Yeah. You know what? I need to move this up. Yep. Colleen, how do I erase what I just wrote? Okay. Okay. This is a study Bible. And what would you use the study Bible for? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of times um, in the first few pages before a book even starts, it's going to give you information about the author, about the city that it was written to perhaps, or just what's going on. So this is really helpful to find the history, right? Okay. You could read, read the whole book. Yeah. I think this is part of the danger, actually, of like devotional books. I grew up on um, Daily Bread, I think it was those little books that were printed. And they just take one verse and kind of give you a happy thought for the day rather than giving you the whole span of what a particular author is trying to say. I think that's part of the danger of those type things. So really reading that whole book is going to help give you particularly the literary context of it, right? What else? What other strategies? 
Yes. Yeah. Um, um, that maybe wasn't the refer to other parts. Come on. So see where it's put in scripture as a whole um, and refer to other parts of scripture to know where this is set. Kate, how do you figure out which other parts to go to? I mean, obvious examples, right? Like Psalms will read about David's life at the same time or vice versa if you're reading about David's life go to Psalms. But just right. um, even just the information that tells you when a book was written, you can go back to right. the history of, of Israel and find that piece. Yeah. A lot of times, for instance, in Psalms, it'll say of David or when David was fleeing the Philistines or when David was fleeing Saul. And sometimes in a good study Bible, I'd actually have the reference right there. I know this takes time. We just want to read the Psalm, right? But take, if you have an extra moment, go back and read that portion and it will illuminate that Psalm so, so, so very much. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, a lot of times there'll be like a little letter on a particular word and you can go find that and it might give you another word for it, it might give you some other references. It's kind of like a treasure hunt to go see how that is. It does. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right, because then you can see, like, oh, I don't have to flip, flip, flip. You have to know online, too, sometimes, but there are a lot of really neat online resources. Like, I use something called, um, the Bi- I think it was called the Bible Project. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they give you, like, a seven-minute video of an entire book, and so you can watch... We were just looking at them yesterday, we're like drooling. We're like, these are so fun, yeah, because they're like animated and yeah. So I mean, you know, you can't just you don't want to just pull anything up, but yeah, there are neat resources like that. Yeah, and I think right if you if you say I'm going to be studying, I don't know, First Kings for the next month or however long it takes me to get through it, you're okay putting in a little bit of time at the front end to watch a video, you know, so that you can understand the, the, the context of the book a little bit more. Um, I was really blessed last Sunday by a Jay sermon. We've been studying Ecclesiastes here, and one thing that he did was he, it was like we've been studying Ecclesiastes, and then it was like he took the plane and took it up to like the 300,000 foot view. And he's like, wait, but let's look at this in light of eternity. Let's look at this in light of what the rest of scripture says. And that can also be extremely helpful. If you think about the biblical story, the biblical narrative, how has this particular theme been working itself out for all of history? And how will it end? So if you look at the the, the 
mega picture, sometimes that can also be helpful. In light of creation, fall, redemption, and the consummation that is yet to come. That can also be extremely helpful. Another way to get um, the literary context is to identify what kind of book you're reading. So if you're reading a historical book, it's going to be set up in a certain way. If you're reading Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, those more like a wisdom literature. They might be more like poetry. Um, and you study it slightly different. So figuring out what the genre of a certain book, that is such a weird word. Um, what the genre of a book is, that can also be very helpful. Um, when we get into the New Testament, there's a lot of letters written to people. Well, if you realize that it's a letter, then you might want to figure out who the audience actually is, and that would help you figure out who them then is. So you can actually study a little bit about that city and what was going on there in that church. A lot of times actually going then to the historical book, which would be Acts, would help you figure out what's, why Paul wrote this letter later on. Anything, anything else? Let's see what we've got. We've got a study Bible, reading the whole book, setting it in its right place in scripture so you can refer to other parts using cross-references, using online resources like the Bible Project. Mary, is there one that you particularly like to use? The ESV Study Bible online? Yep. It's not a study Bible, it's just the ESV. Great. Great. The ESV online. Um, looking at the big story, um, figuring out what genre it is. Um, this one might be so obvious that we haven't said it. Reading the verses right around that verse. <laughs> yeah. Reading the whole chapter. Yeah, read the whole book, but also read, read the other verses just surrounding it. Okay, so right now we're going to use a very often quoted scripture. Jeremiah 29, 11. Um, so if you would turn there, we've got some work to do. And I want you to be thinking about places where you have seen this verse used. Jeremiah 29, 11. Let's read it together. If you have an English Standard Version, ESV, if you don't, pitch in with somebody else so that we all read the same thing. All right? Jeremiah 29, 11. And go. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Where have you seen this used before? Graduation cards, right? Embroidered on pillows. Yeah. Nursery art, right? Because it's, you know, the, the start of something. Interesting. 
it was actually my class verse. I went to a Christian school, and so this was pounded into me from eighth grade on. Yeah. Yeah, but I think, I, I often think of graduation cards, too, but... Um, we use, I think I often have used this, even I've written it to friends in cards, you know, when they're going through something really, really hard, and we want to remind them, God's got good in store for you. Hang in there, you know. He knows, he knows what he's doing. Um, okay, so let's use some of these tools that we've just been talking about to figure out what's going on. So let's figure out first, what's happening in this book? Well, I know that some of you might have resources with you, but I printed out a little something from my handy-dandy ESV study Bible. Okay? So this is just from chapter 1. And go ahead and with your partner, just read the first, I don't know, three verses of Jeremiah 1. And then look at some of the study notes on them. See if you can figure out what's happening in this book. Like one for every two people would be great. All right. Here you go, guys. Huh? Well, I kind of handed them to every other person. ESV study Bible, yeah. One to three, and then look at the study notes. Oh, just read all of this and then read the study notes. Okay. Yep. note for one three. Look at that study note. That'll be the most helpful, I think. I don't want to negate the others, but, you know. Yeah. Thank you. 
You guys okay? All right. I don't know if you've had time to process all that. <laughs> but um, what's happening in, in this world at this time? What's going on? Who's Jeremiah ministering to or ministering during? Say again. No. Are there presidents? There's kings. Where are these kings located? Judah. Okay, so you might remember that the people of Israel, God's chosen people, had asked for a king. We had kings like David, Solomon, and then things started to get really messy. And the kingdom actually broke into two. And we had two kingdoms, one called Israel, the other called Judah. Israel went bad way faster than Judah did, okay? And they got conquered. So Jeremiah is ministering to the, to the last kings of Judah, Okay, so this is part of our historical context here. This is the last kings of Judah. There's one particular uh, (laughs) king, Jehoiakim. I love how the ESV uh, study note calls him the book's villain. Right? I mean, you just kind of like see this guy like with fangs. Right? And you learn that they're going, um, he's just so wishy-washy. And, um, and who, who is attacking Judah at that time? What other country? Babylon. Okay, so you've got the last kings of Judah, and they, their hearts are turning from God, which in turn is turning the people's hearts from God as well, and they are disobeying God. They aren't following his laws. And so God brings judgment not only on the king, but on the whole nation. And so they are taken into exile, okay? I don't know, is that word actually used in this little bit here? Captivity. Okay. This is the historical context in which Jeremiah is writing. How does this book fit into the greater story, into the great story? Okay, well, we're talking a little bit about how we're tracking the people of Israel. Now, we eventually know that the people don't stay in captivity forever. So you, would, you could kind of see, okay, we know that they have to leave at some point. They, they are freed at some point, but maybe you don't know that part of the story yet, but maybe you do. And you know, okay, this is just happening at this particular time. So there's hope coming. Jesus eventually comes. So hopefully we'll play more with that later. Now let's look at what's happening in the surrounding chapters of Jeremiah 29 to find the literary context, okay, the words surrounding this. Let's actually go all the way back to Jeremiah 27. Now, given, guys, you'd have to be reading the whole book to 
get all these pieces, okay? So I've been studying this, and so I'm, I didn't just pop open a Jeremiah 29 and like magically find all this stuff. Like I had to be studying it, all right? So let's look at Jeremiah 27, verse 2. Again, in Jeremiah, God, God asked Jeremiah to do all these weird things. He, has to, like, he actually physically represents many things with his own body. And this is one of the things that God asked him to do. Thus the Lord said to me, Make yourself strap and yoke bars and put them on your neck. And then he sends word to all these different countries that Babylon is going to rule them. Babylon We'll, okay, jump down to verse 8. If any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have consumed it by, it, by his hand. So this yoke is a pretty big deal. This yoke is being placed on every nation, and that yoke is Babylon. Babylon is going to be ruling everyone. So Jeremiah 27 talks about this yoke. Then let's go to, ver- to chapter 28. Okay, so at this point, we are introduced to this guy named Hananiah. And Hananiah, let's start in verse 2. This is what he says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broke the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place all these people and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Hmm. So, wait a second. Didn't God just say, like, he's putting a yoke on? Why is this guy saying he's going to take the yoke off? Well, if you just stop there, that would actually be highly confusing. So it's a good thing that we're going to keep reading. If you look at verse 10... Then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke them. So he literally goes up to Jeremiah, rips off the yoke bars. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people. Thus says the Lord, even so will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar from the neck of all the nations within how many years? Two years. Huh. This is really weird because it seems like God was saying... He just put this yoke on everybody. So in verse 12 to 17, check this out. Sometime after the prophet Hananiah had broken the bars from off the neck of Jeremiah the prophet, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Go tell Hananiah, thus says the Lord, you have broken wooden bars, but you have made in their place bars of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put upon the neck of all these nations an iron yoke to serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. For I have given him even the beasts of the field. And Jeremiah said to the prophet Hananiah, Listen, Hananiah, 
The Lord has not sent you. This is huge. He, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will remove you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die, because you have uttered rebellion against the Lord. In the same year, in the seventh month, the prophet Hananiah died. So this guy who's saying, I'm going to break the yoke and you'll return in two years. This is completely false. So the literary context here is that we have a false prophet. Are you guys tracking with me on this? Okay. Please, if you have any questions, slow me down. Yes. He's saying, I hope that's the case. It's almost sarcasm. He's like, I really hope they come back in two years, but I don't think that's what God said. So he's saying, yeah. um, He did. Sorry, guys. I just skipped over that part because I thought it was confusing, but you're exactly right. It is confusing. If you look at um, verse 8, he's saying, the prophets who preceded you, and me from ancient times prophesied all these horrible things, but apparently you're saying something completely different than all of those men of God. So he, he's being quite sarcastic, actually. He's saying, oh, I hope that happens. Does that make, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that knowing that context of that verse, yeah, which is interesting. That's why it, I found just interesting that God just wipes this guy off the face of the earth. He's like, you are uttering lies. So those are the surrounding chapters. Let's see what's happening in this particular chapter. Jeremiah 29. Okay, let's just look at the, the verse right before Jeremiah 29, 11. Could somebody read Jeremiah 29, 10? How many years? 70. That's way different than two. Yeah, after you've been in college for 70 years. Yeah. All right, so Jeremiah 29 says 70 years. And if we actually look back at verses 4 through 9, the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, says to all the the exiles, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Since set up shop. You're going to be there a while. But these false prophets were like, no, no, no. Just live in a tent. It'll be fine. You'll be leaving soon. So this is where we find Jeremiah 29 and 11. 
For I know the plans I have for you, plans for your welfare, not for evil, to give you future and a hope. Now let's continue on. Let's look at the verses after. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from, the end, from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place which I sent you into exile. What are the plans for welfare that God has for this people? Okay, come back to, let's use words from scripture, actually. I mean, like, I love where you're going with the summary there, but, like, actually give me what exactly. Okay, so 70 years in Babylon. Okay, back to the land. Which is uh, 10. What else is he going to restore? He's given, yeah, but what is that future and hope? Look at, look at what he says about his relationship, their relationship with him. You will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you. Their relationship with God will be restored as well. Right? I am going to summarize here. So they're going to have a restored relationship. With God. Yes. They've been scattered. They've been all over the place, and it says he'll bring them back from all the different nations. He's going to bring them together. Maybe being a little facetious, does this mean that, get, that you're going to get a good paying job? Does this mean you're going to make Dean's List? No, that's not what this verse means, right? But that's what we've minimized it to mean. I actually want to, I hope, I hope you're still with me. Are you guys okay? Yeah, okay, great. I want to take us one, one chapter over. One more chapter over to give us just a little bit more context. Jeremiah 30, look at verses 8 and 9. Would somebody be willing to read those? And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Here comes this yoke idea again. But what is happening to the yoke this time? 
It's broken by who? God himself. It is eternally broken. It's not broken by some false prophet who's just giving you willy-nilly promises. This is broken by God. And then, verse 9, they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king. Wait a second, David's dead. Who is that talking about? Jesus. The eternal king. Guys, this, this blew my mind when I found this particular verse. That uh, let's see here. Let's go back to our circles. The literary context of this, right? This yoke that was placed on them, that was broken by a false prophet. In Jeremiah 30, the yoke is eternally broken. And that the eternal king will be worshipped. Oh, that was weird. So for them, there is the promise that they will return to the land in 70 years, right? Okay. So if they were to read Jeremiah 29, 11, in the midst of exile, they've just been taken from their homes. Now they're living in this foreign land. They've been told... Plant some gardens, actually build a house. Go ahead, marry, make families, go for it. I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare and a future. They hear that verse. They are thinking about the future that they one day will be brought back to the land. They'll be brought back to the promised land. That they will be able to find God again, that their relationship with God would be restored that their fortunes would be restored. Right now they're slaves, right? And their families are all over the place now, but they'll be gathered together. They'll all be in the same place. That's what it meant for them then. What does it mean for us now? Are we in a type of exile... Are we in captivity? Who's our captor? What are we slaves to? We are slaves to sin. We were not meant for this broken world. This isn't our home. We have hope that one day we will be brought to the promised land. And that's not Israel. That's the new heaven and new earth. And our relationship with God, it'll be perfect. Every time we pray to God, he's going to be right there. And yeah, we will, we will be rich. We're his sons and daughters. We'll be princesses and princes. We are heirs to his kingdom. And all of his people that have been spread to the corners of the earth will be in one place. This is not just hope for a promotion, guys. Right? This is hope of our future, of our eternal king. That the yoke that we wear now will be broken. Context. Do you feel it? 
I mean, I, I, I feel like I just talked a ton of you and we're flipping pages back and forth. I, I personally needed to do this because I feel like I have been just kind of reading and not discovering the treasures that are there. So I'm actually really thankful that I got to, to, to prepare this because it forced me to get in and wrestle. And, and is, that, is that a theme that goes throughout Scripture? Questions before we move on? in context too right like studying scripture in context helps us see that we are part of a larger story a larger eternal story that's been that is developing and that that promise is not just to get us through today it's to give us that eternal perspective yeah that's really really helpful Yeah, yeah. And I actually found it helpful uh, myself. You know, it, it says, build a house, have a family. Because I think sometimes we're like, oh, I just want heaven, and we forget to live here well yeah. and enjoy what there's is here. So, I mean, there's so much to glean, right? I was going to say that, too. Like, that it, some years is a long time. Some people didn't make it out. Like, some people died in 70 years, right? You're 60 and you go there, you have lived 100 times. <laughs> So some people didn't see that, but that God told them to do something good in the meantime, which was to seek the welfare of the city there. So to that there is, even amongst something that isn't our home, God still has a purpose, purpose. for us, even if it's not necessarily what we ultimately want. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we have a few minutes left, and I want us to try to use these questions to work with another piece of scripture that's very familiar, and that would be 1 Corinthians 13. Maybe it's familiar to some of us. I don't want to assume that's the case for all of us. Sorry about that. Um, 1 Corinthians 13 um, is the love chapter. Yeah. What page is that on? Anybody want to give a shout out? There we go. 959. So if you would... Um, are you, 
have you seen this before? 1 Corinthians 13. Perhaps it's best known for that middle portion. Love is patient and kind, does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude. Um, verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. When do we often use this scripture? Weddings! Okay, so what we're going to try to do right now is figure out, would you actually want this read at your wedding? <laughs> okay, so um, again, what is happening in the book? I'm going to give you guys a sheet from, copied again from my ESV study Bible. If you don't have a good study Bible, I would recommend that one. It's really a solid one. Um, where does this book fit into the, the great story, the greater story? Okay, I'm just going to give you that piece at this point. Jesus has come, and his disciples and the apostles are taking the word out. And this is Paul writing to a church in Corinth. Okay, so sometimes Corinthians and Chronicles can get kind of confusing. Chronicles before Jesus, Corinthians after Jesus. Okay, this is, this is a letter. So look around 1 Corinthians 13 at the surrounding chapters. And try to distill what is being said to them then. And hold off until the very end to figure out what it's trying to say to us today. Okay? Okay? Alright, so you have a few minutes. Um, and I will hand out those. This one's a little different, by the way. It has the purpose, occasion, and background. That's where I would suggest you go. Sorry, it's on the other side. Actually, flip it over, guys. That's more helpful. Hi, hi, hi. There you go. Oh, you have a study Bible. That. Okay. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. What time do you want to start yours? Uh, by 11:30. Really? Yeah. I mean, I would just work this through to like. We don't need to do a wrap-up? Okay, awesome. Okay. I'll give them to 11.15 to work on this. I'll wrap up. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see how this goes. I need to give them at least five minutes and then five minutes to extract stuff. Okay. 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 We're going to talk about love. Love. 
Guys, question for you. Would it be helpful if we talk about what's happening in the book in like two minutes? So we all do that together and then we move on? That'd be helpful. Okay, so like two or three minutes and then we'll talk just specifically about that together. Okay? Some ideas? Do we have some ideas about what's going on historically? I cheesy. All right. Did anybody pick up anything about the actual church of Corinth or the city itself? What's happening in that city at that time? Anybody catch that? They were really divided. Okay. So that this is the church themselves. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the city, there was like all this many God stuff going on. Immorality? Mm-hmm. This is something I've started to recognize recently. Um, you know, like a book like Hebrews, if you hear the term Hebrew, right, that's actually kind of written to people who have been Jewish for a long time. This book is being written to people who are coming out of totally different religions. They have no context for what 
following God's commandments look like? So this immorality, it's part of just how they've been brought up. This is, this is what they're used to, okay? Anything else we learn about the church or the city? The church that was there before, so it was established. Okay. Yeah, they've been around a bit. They know the truth of the gospel. Great point. Mm. I'm just summarizing that for gain. Yep. Okay. So that's really good, guys. Can I just point out that it took you like five minutes? <laughs> it's pretty good. Okay, so that's giving you some of the historical context of what's going on there. I particularly found, if you look at that um, printout that I gave to you, the third paragraph, the very last one on the bottom of the introduction to 1 Corinthians. I found that kind of helpful as well. Um, So sometime later, this is kind of in the middle of that paragraph, Paul received an oral report indicating that the Corinthians had not only misunderstood his first letter, but were plagued with serious problems of division, we've mentioned, sexual immorality, and social snobbery, which you guys have all mentioned. Um, and around the same time, a letter arrived from the Corinthians that displayed considerable theological confusion about marriage, divorce, participation in pagan religions, order within corporate worship, and the bodily resurrection of Christians. In response to these troubling developments, Paul felt compelled to write a substantial letter to Corinth. So what this, this book is, is a response to all the confusion that they've been having. I think that's also helpful to know, that they're actually asking for assistance in understanding certain parts of their faith. Okay, so this is a letter. Oh, I almost wrote French. That's exciting, isn't it? Letter in response. I'll just leave it at that. But it's a letter in response to what they've written to him. Like, we don't get this stuff. Okay. All right. Let's move on and look at some of the literary context. So let's, for the sake of time, just look at the chapters on either side of 1 Corinthians 13. Hmm? Oh, you got you. Yeah, sorry. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, you kind of you can graze it a little bit. If, okay. Um, just kind of try to figure out yeah, the main point of each chapter. Yeah, sometimes the headings can be helpful. That's kind of cheating, but, Have you guys had time to look at both 12 and 14? Yes, both Great. Have you had time to look at both 12 and 14? Yeah. Okay, great. Have you done 12 and 14? Okay, great. Have you guys done 12 and 14? Great, great. Have you guys had time to do both 12 and 14? Yeah. Okay, great, great. Okay, guys, let's pull it back together. Let's try that again. Let's pull that back together. <laughs> um, could, could somebody tell me what's going on in chapter 12? What are some of the things that are happening there? What's, what's Paul talking about? Spiritual gifts. This is chapter 12. Right. So this is actually a question that the church posed to Paul. Remember, his responses are, like, he's responding to something they've asked about. So are some spiritual gifts better than other ones? So he's responding there, saying, no, concerning spiritual gifts. And he's going to discourse about that. Right? And I... Verse 4, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. And i got to be honest, I love chapter 12. I love teaching this to kids in particular because then, you know, you start talking about, well, if you didn't have an eye, could your ear help you out, you know, and see things, you know? It's so visual, right? It's a great passion. It's a great portion. But actually, he's saying, get off your high horse. Just so you can preach doesn't mean that you're more special than the person who's setting up the chairs. He's really lecturing them here. Okay, so 
Anything else from, ver from chapter 12 that you would like to notice? Right. It's, it's our nature. It's great to have just so many different ways of reminding us. Like, no, God gave everybody Yeah, and He gave He right. We all have value. All of these different gifts are so necessary. Right. Verse twenty-seven. You are the body of Christ, and inv individually members of it. And you know, He He's saying all of these things are important. Okay, anything else from verse from chapter 12? Okay, let's move on to 14. What's happening in chapter 14? He's talking about prophecy and tongues, which are spiritual gifts as well. So, chapter 14 He's talking about other gifts, prophecy, tongues. So here's chapter 13, sandwiched in between a discourse on spiritual gifts and spiritual gifts. Did Paul just stop talking about spiritual gifts in the middle? Ah! Uh -uh. What does he say? He says, okay, if you look at the tail end, very last little bit of chapter 12. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, that's a spiritual gift, speaking in tongues. But have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, that's a spiritual gift, prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith, faith, some people have that in mega quantity, which is a spiritual gift, as to move, remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, giving, another spiritual gift. And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. He is talking about spiritual gifts here. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. I'm, I have a better spiritual gift than you do. <laughs> it is not arrogant or rude. I preach better than you do. Right? It is not insistent on its own way. I know how to set up the chairs. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, the spiritual gifts... They will pass away. As for tongues, 
That's another gift. They will cease. As for knowledge, that's another gift. It will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Wait, wait, wait. What is he saying right there? Unfortunately, we haven't had time to look into this. But he, at some points in this letter, says to the Corinthians, Are you children? Why are you still drinking milk? I need to give you meat, but you're still drinking milk. It's like, why are you still eating animal crackers when there's steak here? Right? So he's saying, you are acting like children. For now we see in a mirror dimly, and then face to face. For I know in part, but then... I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now, the, now faith, hope, and love abide. But these three, but the greatest of these is love. And then he launches into 14. So pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. This is a continued thought. So when we pluck this passage out and preach it at a wedding... Like, he's actually, he's pretty much, like, wagging his finger at them right now. Like, you've got all these gifts, but you're not loving each other, so what difference does it make? I mean, that's what I'm hearing him say, right? So, putting this in context to them then, what is it saying to us now? Live in love in the body of Christ. I mean, it's saying something very similar to us today, right? Like, you have gifts. Use them in love. And everyone has them. So everyone ha- everybody has a place. Right. 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 Do I, do I still need to... Uh, be patient and kind with my husband. Yeah. But it's, it's also, I think that um, we need to see it in context, right? Because it means so much more to put it in context. Um, is it wrong? Honestly, I think we need to be cautious because if we're using it to support what we want it to support then we might not actually be hearing the message that it's saying. Um, And I think if our pastors do a good job of illuminating us as to how this fits into context, because this is like, this is a lecture, right? This is a correction. You're not loving each other. Well, sometimes in marriage, don't we need to be corrected that we're not loving each other? Right, you know, in a marriage, it's easy. You look so pretty and, you know, all that stuff. It was, oh, man, I could talk about that for a long time. People, you just wake up and people put makeup on you. It's awesome. Earnestly, it's presented. It's not just a fluffy and yes. celebration and of we're already doing these things, yeah. but an earnest reminder like, like you're entering into this together. And this is, this is what you need to remember because you're sinful, because you're boastful, because you're not. Right. Our nature isn't to do these things. This is what you're embarking on together. Right. 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 Because you know, verse even even chapter twelve is you know they're they're 
they're powering for position. So even just getting that, that view, helps you to, you know, to understand. Does this, does this affect your marriage? Certainly. Yeah. Certainly. Great question, by the way. Any other questions, comments, thoughts, rebuttals? <laughs> yeah. I think that's a great point. Okay. okay. The literary? Okay, that's just the literary context. Genre would be literature it is. The words surrounding that text. So the other chapters around it, the other words around it, um, the other verses around it, rather. Yeah. Historical context, literary context. Yep, that's what those two things are. Sorry, you're an English teacher. This is probably not the correct use of these words. <laughs> are you an English teacher? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it's really just looking at the words around it. Word context. Something that we have not done is... Often within a book or a chapter, there are repeated words, and that would be another thing that you would put in here. So tracking the word gift throughout these, throughout this book, you would gain so much. Yeah, that's a great way to put it, Mary. Yep, words or themes in and around a passage. Um, can I just encourage you, uh, if you have never done this before, you're not going to do all of this in one day. Okay? So start with one piece and one piece inside of a piece. So watch a video on what this book potentially could mean. Then read the book. Then, you know, if you still don't understand what's happening in the book, look at an outline maybe that your study Bible has given you. Like, and that could all be three different days, right? Like, take your time. Don't feel like you have to sit down and do historical and literary and Greek translations all in one day. That's too much, okay? So just little pieces at a time, okay? Thank you for your excellent participation. <laughs> Who wants some sugar? <laughs> Would you please grab something quickly, use the restroom, and then Colleen's going to give us one more tool for our tool belt when we return.